Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we'll have a reflection on the far-right rise in Italy. Not all people supporting Meloni need be actual fascists, but all would have been aware of the party's historical roots as an evolution of the movements born from the ashes of the original fascist party with a capital F. Plus, we explore the relationship between British espionage and male homosexuality. There's something about the homosexual identity as it was forming at that time that actually was intrinsically linked with the creation of sort of spycraft in the British state. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, I spoke with Emma Nelson earlier in the week about the results of the first round of the presidential elections in Brazil, which I was covering in the month of September. It is weird that we're talking here uh, once again uh, about Bolsonaro, but the final results was here. Lula, 48.43% and Bolsonaro, 43.20%. To be honest, uh, most uh, kind of uh, political analysts were saying that there was a small chance that Lula could win in the first round, but it was not guaranteed. But the latest polls were saying that Lula was going to get around 50% of the vote, which is fine. You got 48% a little bit of a, a margin of error there, and Bolsonaro would get about 36. So clearly there's been an overestimation of, of, of Lula and many candidates of the left as well. Uh, so that just shows the power uh, that Bolsonaro still has in the country, uh, in a way. You're quite right. It's, it, well, which one is it, I wonder? Is it an overestimation of Lula's potential or an underestimation of Bolsonaro? Well, I would say an underestimation of Bolsonaro uh, in particular. We don't know where it went wrong uh, for the opinion polls as well. I have to say they, they used to be quite trusty. Uh, even in the 2018 election, they were already kind of predicting that Bolsonaro was going to the second round and actually uh, win the election. Uh, so we, we are talking here about very respected uh, opinion polls, including from Folha de São Paulo, interviewed their editor. So it's quite hard uh, to know where it went wrong. To be does it happen in other countries as well? But one thing that really shocked shocked me, Emma, when you look at the at the Senate, uh, many candidates that were former ministers of Bolsonaro, they have been elected. Names like uh, Damaris Alves, uh, she won a senator for the federal district. She's a very ideological Bolsonarista. Uh, she's the minister that said that boys have to wear blue and girls have to wear pink. So it, it, it was really kind of this very reactionary side of the bolsonarismo as well uh, they have been elected uh, magno malta as well former priest at spiritu santo in some ways some of those candidates they are even further to the right than in 2018 of course we're still here talking about lula almost getting the 50 percent but it is a bit of a shock for the whole uh, country and, and political uh, sphere the fact that bolsonaro you know is still very strong here As you were leaving Brazil, did you get a sense of which way this was going to go? Well, there was a sense. It was good that I was there because, you know, I spoke to a lot of people from, you know, cab drivers to hairdressers. People say, you know what, I I would still vote for Bolsonaro. I don't think he's the perfect candidate. Uh, But there's certain people that would never, ever vote uh, for Lula, even though Lula definitely is trying to move to the center with his choice of vice president. 
there's still a little bit of a, a rejection uh, towards his name. And, and, and people that are Bolsonaro voters, they're very kind of faithful uh, to him as well. I mean, 43.20%, I am still very much shocked by the, about those news. I didn't think Bolsonaro would even hit uh, the 40% mark. And and looking at the Congress, we, I mean, the Congress, they're still kind of deciding what's going to be the makeup of the Congress, but it's going to be a Congress that is as right-wing as 2018. So even if Lula does win, which still looks likely, to be honest, it's going to be very hard to govern. He, 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 will, he will have a, a Senate that will be completely, uh, go completely opposite uh, to his policy. So, as I said, Lula might still win this, but it's going to be very hard to govern uh, for him as well. For Lula, though, this is a pretty remarkable comeback, because if you look at what's happened to him in the last few years, you mentioned the 2018 election. He was forced to miss it because he was in prison. He spent, what, nearly 600 days in jail on corruption, on a corruption conviction that was overturned. So for him to come back and get 48% of the vote is pretty remarkable, though, isn't it? Well, it is looking at this way for sure. Uh, you know, he was, as you say, he was in prison and after he's been declared, uh, you know, innocent by the Supreme Court, you know, it is a remarkable number for him as well. And let's be honest, Emma, since 2002, Brazilian elections do go to the second round. In fact, Lula, even when he won twice uh, the term, even Dilma, when she won twice as well, the dispute went to the second round. In fact, even with Bolsonaro. So it is a little bit of a tradition. It's just that people were expecting uh, that there was a chance uh, of winning the first round. But yes, uh, remarkable. I mean, and some people are saying that to beat Bolsonaro, in fact, Lula would be the only person uh, in the world of Brazilian politics that could actually have a chance against Bolsonaro. If he was a weaker candidate of the left or someone that is not Lula, perhaps Bolsonaro you know, could even win a second term. Both Lula and Bolsonaro are very likely to claim this as a victory, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And and I have to say, we're talking, we, we're just talking about Lula. He gave a speech uh, at the end of the night. He, you know, he struck a very positive tone in a way. He will want to talk to the other candidates, especially Simone Tabet. She was uh, the third uh, place in the poll. She, she got 4.16% of the vote. And, you know, she didn't declare her vote yet, but she said, of course, I'll have a position and I'll tell you, as soon as I can. And my hint is that Simone Tabet will probably support Lula. And I think that support will be very important, even though she just got a 4.16% of the vote. You know, if Lula got, get half of that, he, he, he will probably win uh, this election. And they have disagreements, but some agreements, especially in the environmental uh, area where Simone Tabet is completely against Bolsonaro. But we have to wait and see. Who knows, perhaps even later today, we might know a bit more about this. But the difficulty we now face, though, is you have a month of campaigning between Lula and Bolsonaro, and it doesn't do anything to heal a very divided country. You're very right. I mean, and it's been one of the most tense elections. Even when I was there, a lot of Brazilians actually, they were afraid of sharing 
uh, their vote because of a fear of political violence. You know, it's uh, it is being tough. There's been cases, isolated cases, but there's been cases of of even murders uh, because of of political reason as well. Thankfully, when I was voting uh, here in West. London, a very busy, uh, you know, I was uh, it was a long queue actually because we have a thriving community here. Thankfully, there were no fights, and yesterday was mainly in peace. I would say the whole process around the country, but yeah, and and it would be a very dirty election. Uh, I think there would be a lot of insults and attacks, and but I would love to see a debate with only Lula and Bolsonaro. That's something that was missed in the first round because they have to share, you know. Uh, with other candidates at the same time as well. But now it's going to be a direct combat between Bolsonaro and Lula. Tell me a little bit more about what happens next in terms of the, the procedure. Uh, the, the fact is, is that Jair Bolsonaro already said before the votes took place that he would contest it. We've had international observers coming in and saying the vote was fair and transparent. Does Bolsonaro still believe that any election that would put Lula back in the presidency would be, would not be fair and transparent and that there would be grounds to, to challenge it? I mean, how likelihood is that? Well, I think the likelihood for that probably is a bit smaller because Bolsonaro wouldn't be, I mean, stupid, let's be honest, because he managed to vote uh, to elect so many of his senators and, and, and the Congress as well, as I said, is very right wing. It wouldn't really make... Uh, sense for him to actually say that there, there's fraud here or there because he actually did very well. I mean, he can still contest it, uh, the results of the second round, but even if he does, I don't think he, you know, I, I don't think things will happen. I mean, I believe in the Brazilian democratic institutions. Of course, we know we're dealing with a candidate like Bolsonaro, but uh, that's that's actually the only perhaps good thing about this result uh, that he probably would not contest it. The results were much better for him than he was uh, expecting. And in the meantime, the rest of Latin America and the world look at a country which doesn't know what it stands for. Exactly. I mean, th- there was a sense of, of hope in the air. And it's not necessarily just a division of left and right. I think the whole world... You know, a lot of countries, they look at Bolsonaro as a threat to democracy, as, as a populist. They they, they they see a victory for Lula as a victory of, of like Brazil, re-entering uh, the global stage. But, you know, we, we have to wait and see. We have to look at the new polls. I mean, talking about the new polls, will people trust those new polls? I mean, I'm not sure even if I will. From Brazil to Italy, here is a personal reflection on Italy's far-right turn by a member of Monaco 24 staff who obviously knows the country well. She is Italian. Monaco's culture editor, Chiara Rimela. Plenty of people were unhappy that right-wing hard-nut Giorgia Meloni won the Italian elections earlier this week a fair few of the nation's residents and a large portion of EU leaders among them. I wonder if Rino Gaetano's family wasn't exceedingly pleased either. That's him singing in the background. The late singer-songwriter, his beloved in the whole country for his ironic, experimental music from the 70s. For years, his songs satirising social injustice were used by left-wing parties at their conventions. But in the last few months, Meloni took to playing them to soundtrack her public appearances, which led the Gaetano family to complain. 
It's not an issue of left or right, but of politicians appropriating his music, they said. Fair point. Though I still think there's something strident about Maloney's land grab of the Liberals' traditional musical territory. It just doesn't sound right. Music is quite an important part of a political campaign, which is why when I found out about the election results on Monday morning, my first instinct was to find refuge in some long-lost comfort songs. Meganoidi, Porno Riviste, Scape, Modena City Ramblers. My playlist read a lot like the track list of the many mid-noughties demonstrations that I attended as a teenager. Something about the word fascist being used so frequently on newspaper headlines teleported me to a time when political engagement felt very black and white, passionate and uncompromising. Surely being angry at the fascists is something that belonged back with my 16-year-old self. Perhaps not. Much of the international coverage of Maloney's rise has focused on the fact that this is the most right-wing government to come to power in Italy since Mussolini's fall. Many in-depth analysis pieces have fought sensationalism by carefully explaining that since starting her campaign, Maloney has made her policies more palatable and EU-friendly. Some people have chosen to focus on the fact that a coalition made up of the same parties has existed and governed in the past, though not led by someone from its most radical fringe. Others have found solace in the idea that the right wing was able to poll so well largely because of low turnout, pointing to a failure of the left rather than an absolute success of the right. All of that is true. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Meloni's rise has given a comfortable, prime real estate home to all those fascists we used to scream against at our teenage demonstrations. Of course, not all people supporting Meloni need be actual fascists. Plenty of those who voted for Fratelli d'Italia may have done so out of a sense of frustration, disappointment, rage. But all would have been aware of the party's historical roots as an evolution of the movements born from the ashes of the original fascist party with the capital F. The fact that's not enough to dissuade them is depressing. It has been depressing for a long time. It's also created a weird thought distortion. It's allowed people to believe that being anti-fascist is a left-wing thing to do. In a telling moment of the weeks preceding the election, pop star Laura Pausini was asked during an interview in Spain to sing Bella Ciao. The song has become very famous in the Iberian Peninsula as a soundtrack of the TV series La Casa de Papel, or Money Heist, but in Italy it is well known as the most famous chant of the anti-fascist resistance. She refused, saying the song was too political. Controversy poured in. Perhaps she's right. Songs become politicised by virtue of who sings them most often. That's why I refuse to give up on Reno Gaetano. Giorgia Meloni may have won the elections, but she's not going to win this fight. From Monocle, I'm Chiara Rimella. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. 
top politicians and defense industry representatives have been gathering in Poland for the Warsaw Security Forum this week. One of the big discussion topics at the gathering was, of course, Ukraine, and more specifically, the support it gets now, and what kind of help it will get with reconstruction when the war with Russia eventually ends. Monaco's Andrew Muller interviewed Thomas Klein Brockhoff, Vice President and Executive Director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office. Andrew started by asking how much planning for reconstructing can be done while Ukraine is still at war. Actual planning must be done while the country is still at war, because when you remember World War II, planning for post-war Europe started in 1943. And should the war end, let's say, tomorrow and day after tomorrow, people will be asking, what have you done on all this time? There's no plans for post-war Ukraine. That's a question you don't want to get asked. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned World War II there, which does raise the obvious question of whether the original Marshall Fund is still a useful template in any way for, for this kind of, I mean, unthinkably large-scale reconstruction. Since we're, I'm with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, that name is in our name, so we thought about this for a little bit. And, of course, the Marshall Plan is an inspiration It also is a role model in terms of the strategic nature of aid, of the generosity of the benevolence of it all. But as a template for today, it is probably not very useful. In fact, I would call about it an inverse Marshall Plan that we, that we need. Because if you think about it, the United States it was the only donor to a dozen plus European uh, countries and it was the hegemon at the time. Now it's the situation is the other, it's the other way. A dozen or hopefully two dozen countries helping one country so that, by the way, construction, donor coordination, architecture is going to be the main design challenge. And secondly, there were no institutions in place at the time. The institutions were built through the Marshall Plan. And the institutions that were built were institutions for aid dispersal. Much more complicated if the institutions that ought to be built are for donor coordination. So what we actually suggest in a big report that we just produced at the German Marshall Fund is that we ought not to reinvent the wheel. That we have to accept that with 70 years on, we have a built-up existing aid structure, including international financial institutions, that we need to use, even though that complicates the coordination and, by the way, the control and the accountability question. I mean, is it even... Well, it, it, it sounds ridiculous to describe any of this as easy, but is the template useful in that respect that you're able to tell yourself or that the continent can think to itself, look, we, we've rebuilt an entire continent within living memory. We can rebuild one country. This is doable. I think it is imminently doable. Not only is it necessary, but also history suggests it's doable. And the numbers also suggest that. The numbers are large. And by the way, they are unknowable because Russia does its best to increase them. So you think this, this number, 750 billion, which Ukraine had in its own recovery and development plan, might be a bit of a low ball? There's different numbers floating around. The Kiev School of Economics currently lists the physical, the sheer physical damage, about 120 billion. Mm -hmm. The World Bank estimates 349 billion, but 
but that includes reconstruction efforts of all sorts with it. And the country of Ukraine estimates 750, but that includes its compatibility with the EU standards. That's sort of a Mercedes belts and whistles and all of that. So nobody's going to want to approach that. So we're probably get we're going to be at the lower end of that scale. And we're looking at a multi-country effort. We're looking at a multi-year effort. We're looking at a multi-instrument effort that includes loans, guarantees, and grants. And we're looking at the instruments of the international financial institutions. Do, do you think strings need to be attached for, for this largesse to flow through to Ukraine? I mean, I, I'm just wondering about how you imagine managing the politics of that because if conditions are imposed it's very easy to see a post-war and hopefully victorious Ukrainian government saying we just fought a war on Europe's behalf do you really want to tell us how to spend this money? Clearly there will be people who would like to say to donors here's the dotted line please sign we'll do the rest that is not going to happen because this is going to be Western countries' taxpayers' money. And yes, Ukraine will be in charge of its reconstruction priorities, but donor countries get to set conditions. That's the name of the game in aid, and it's not going away when more money than ever is going to be dispersed. And that alone creates a desire by some to fill it into the wrong, into the wrong pockets. And mind you, Ukraine has a track record here. So, Well, indeed so. This is what, what, I, what I wanted to ask was, and I'm sure there isn't a short answer to this question, but how robustly can you guard against corruption in an environment like that when you have that combination of unfathomable sacks of cash flowing into a massively disrupted country which already had, as you say, quite the track record? record for corruption. We must. And th that is because of taxpayers' money. Imagine if the first major significant case of fraud becomes public. How are governments, how are parliaments voting for the next tranche? How, do they, how are we expecting to continue to get majorities in our country for that type of aid? So in order to protect the effort, and the Ukrainians will have an interest to protect this effort, to create an ongoing reconstruction effort, these must be tough conditionalities to ensure this process. And there are a few ideas that at least we have collected uh, on how to actually to do that. And the U.S. Supreme Court begins its new term this week, with last June's ruling ending a federal right to abortion looming large, and fears than many other progressive rights, from affirmative action to gay marriages and voting rights, could be next. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak has been listening to the first round of oral arguments before the court's majority conservative justice and hears from their newest member, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. When the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the federal right to abortion last year, it not only toppled a right that had been standing for almost 50 years, but it opened a Pandora's box-style question. Was this a one-time thing? A sort of righting of historic wrongs in the eyes of conservative legal scholars, at least, 
who have long believed that the initial 1973 Roe v. Wade decision on abortion was wrong? Or is this the start of something else? Are we about to see a whole host of long-standing court decisions in the United States overturned? This question matters, because it's one thing for the Supreme Court to have one of the biggest conservative majorities in decades, but it's an entirely different thing if those conservative justices use their majority to reverse a whole bunch of past rulings they didn't agree with. To put this in legal terms, it's all about precedent. Does this new 6-3 conservative majority of justices still care about the precedent that other, more liberal courts before them have set? Well, it really depends which of those six conservative justices you ask. Justice Thomas has always been very open to revisiting precedent. He, you know, writes about it constantly in separate opinions. Justice Gorsuch is fairly open. Justice Alito is fairly open. Uh, and so the question kind of comes from the more center-right people, then how willing are the center-right people, uh, the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett? This is John Elwood with the D.C. law firm Arnold & Partner. Elwood has argued nine cases before the U.S. Supreme Court himself. They have some willingness to revisit precedent, you know, when they've thought about it, when they've really, you know, uh, concluded that, it, that it, there's a reason why uh, to overrule it, why it's not working. But they, I, but they seem less willing to do it willy-nilly. They, there isn't the same appetite there as there is among the court's more conservative members. In other words, in spite of the ruling on abortion, we might expect those three more moderate conservative justices, who will be the swing votes in most cases, to tinker around the edges, erode certain rights. Which is bad enough in the eyes of progressives, but not necessarily the full doomsday scenario of many Democrats. The other question as we begin a new Supreme Court term this week is just how the court's three left-leaning liberal justices will react to being in the minority. Will they take it lying down? Or will they try to wield influence, peel off some of their more conservative colleagues? That particularly goes for the court's newest member, Joe Biden appointee Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is also the first black woman ever on the Supreme Court. This week gave us the first clues to Brown-Jackson's approach, as the court heard oral arguments in two major cases, one involving clean water protections and the other involving voting rights, and whether a redistricting effort by a Republican-controlled legislature in the state of Alabama has disadvantaged black voters. And if the early returns from oral arguments this week are any indication, Ketanji Brown-Jackson will not be shying away from taking the mic. Case ...because the Milgan plaintiffs brought them themselves. What did they illuminate? They show that this is what you would expect a race-neutral map drawer to produce. Why and does that matter? I thought Congress's statute said we don't care about intent. So the race-neutral nature of this goes to whether or not Alabama intended the result. And I take your point that, no, you didn't. So what difference does it make what a race-neutral algorithm would do? It matters for... I, I've been really impressed by how much Hanji Brown-Jackson has spoken up. I mean, just how vocal she is. She's been one of the most, you know, she's spoken the most words. I don't know if you've seen the statistics, but, you know, she's been one of the most vocal uh, questioners during her first two days on the bench. And John Elwood says these interjections by the justices during oral arguments, asking for questions and clarifications from the attorneys before them, 
they aren't even always directed at the attorneys themselves. So many questions are directed, and this is, it's always been this way, so many of the justices' questions are directed at the other people on the bench uh, rather than it, really to the advocate. They're making points to their colleagues through the advocate. And it looks like, you know, it may be that she's trying to persuade sort of centrist. But beyond uh, convincing their peers, sometimes the goal, especially for these three minority justices, can be to set benchmarks for the public record, a sort of warning that the world is watching. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, for example, spoke at length about the history of protecting black voting and, rights. And even more than that, um, I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, right? They drafted the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. That's the point of that act, to make sure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same as the white citizens. So they recognized that there was unequal treatment, that people based on their race were being treated uh, unequally. And importantly, when there was... This kind of passionate intervention also goes to a final question for this court's new term. Does it care about legitimacy? The fact is, trust in the U.S. Supreme Court is at an all-time low. This is largely because, it has to be said, Republicans have played politics with the nomination process. For example, denying Barack Obama the chance to nominate a Supreme Court justice in the final year of his presidential term, while allowing Donald Trump to nominate his pick even later in his own term. These kinds of political ploys may have given conservatives what they want, a right-leaning Supreme Court willing to ditch a long-held right such as abortion, but it risks undermining the wider public's faith in the Supreme Court. Expect at least the more moderate conservative justices to understand and keep this somewhere in their minds too, to be wary of throwing the American legal system into complete disarray just yet. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Jermak. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to the curator here on Monaco 24. Let's have a listen now to a recipe by Ricardo Chanaton. He's the chef owner of Hong Kong's Mono restaurant. He shares one of his favorite recipes. Hi, my name is Ricardo Chanaton. I'm the chef de cuisine and owner of Mono Restaurant in Hong Kong. I would like to explain to you a little bit of how we do the Venezuelan arepas, stuffed with mashed avocado and organic chicken salad. We call it in my country, Reina Pepiada. This is in honor of a Miss Universe that it come from Venezuela. The ingredients are very straightforward. Uh, the way we prepare it is we place the chicken uh, in water with some vegetables like the white onion, we put a little bit of carrot, uh, bay leaf, and also we put a green bell pepper with a little bit of the stems of coriander. What we do here is we bring to boil all the ingredients together and we cook the chicken breasts. We let it cool down, the chicken breasts, inside of the water. And what we do after is we shred it with the hands. 
for the filling, what we do is we take the avocados, the ripe avocados, and we chop onions or shallots, whatever you have in the fridge, together with two limes, the juice of two limes, and some mayonnaise. You mix all the ingredients together in a large uh, mixing bowl, and you add the shredded chicken as well. At the end, what we do is we chop some coriander leaves, and we add it as well with the salad, and we mix all together. We set the bowl aside in the fridge, especially because we wanted to keep it very cold, and we move forward to prepare the dough for the arepas. The dough is very straightforward as well. We just need the flour of pre-cooked uh, white corn flour. The brand that we use is Pan, is the most famous brand for pre-cooked white corn flour. We use also uh, warm water, salt, and uh, corn oil. So basically what we do is we add the water in a large mixing bowl, and we add little by little the flour, the salt, and we mix with our hands. Once the dough is all homogeneous and no lumps are uh, seen in, in the bowl, what you do is you form uh, pieces, round pieces, around 40 grams uh, per bowl, and uh, you uh, make it flat with the palms of your hands. After it's flat, what you're gonna do is you're gonna cook in a non-sticky pan or in a cast iron pan that you uh, cover with a little bit of corn oil to avoid that they stick together. However, don't put too much oil because otherwise it's gonna be like a deep fry. You want it to have a little bit of burn on it because the burn is help you with the flavor uh, that is authentic of the arepa. That flavor is a little bit bitter and we love this kind of flavor and the contrast with the filling that you're gonna add later on. Once you cook the arepas in both sides, what you can do is you finish it in the oven at 180 degrees. Once when you tap it, it sounds like empty inside, that means that it's ready. So with the help of a very small knife, what you do is you open like a pocket in one of the sides of the arepa. You take out a little bit of the dough inside and you stuff it with the salad of chicken. And then, voila, you have your reina pepiada. And now we head to the Monaco Grand Prix. It's always has been one of my favorites. Emily Sands, she tells us how the tiny principality with a big reputation for motor racing is affected by its annual race. Located in the French Riviera with a population of nearly 40,000 residents lies a city-state known for its reputation as a billionaire's playground. The land border of less than six kilometers an array of narrow medieval streets, the high-pitched buzz of a V12 turbo engine and the harbour filled with super yachts, Monaco is famous for its lavish wealth, the Monte Carlo Casino and, of course, the Monaco Grand Prix. The country sees tourist numbers swell by 500% every year in May for the prestigious Grand Prix. Formula One cars began racing around Monaco's narrow streets in 1929, attracting huge crowds to watch the first instance of what would become one of the world's most historic races. After a 26-year break due to delays and technical difficulties, the race has appeared on every season's calendar since 1955, barring the 2020 season due to the coronavirus outbreak. The circuit offers 78 laps of high-paced, strategic racing that sets itself apart by requiring an immense amount of skill, concentration and team effort to take the win, instead of just being down to who has the fastest car. But a narrow urban track like this means safety concerns are ever-present. Barriers weren't installed until the 60s, and before this, making the wrong decision meant that the drivers could end up crashing into a lamppost, a local patisserie, or even into the waters of Port Hercules. 
1955, Italian driver Alberto Ascari got a taste of this when he flew into the Monegasque waters after misjudging a chicane. The car has somersaulted straight into the harbour. Frogman standing by, dive in to rescue Ascari. Even now, one tiny mistake can see your car making friends with the barriers and ending your race early. You can ask Charles Leclerc about that one. What is Leclerc's problem? And is Leclerc actually going to go for it here? And oh, he can't stop! And he has gone straight on into Brendan Harley. And you can see that that was... With 200,000 people arriving for the Grand Prix each year and an added 100,000 on race day, the bustling streets of Monaco become crowded with big spenders for the weekend. That money contributes big to the local economy and the race to the physical streetscape, with the track sausage curbs and racing lines visible all year round. For locals and visitors, travelling within Monaco during the weekend is exceedingly difficult. Monaco does offer a regular bus service and taxis, as well as the monobike, an electric bike service aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. However, these services grind to a halt on race weekend, and residents might be better off staying on their yacht for the night or watching the race from their balcony rather than trying to join the trackside seating. Monaco has also had its share of some memorable moments on the track. 1984 saw one of the wettest races ever in Monaco. Starting after a 45-minute delay, rookie Artin Senna ploughed through the field in his Tolman, quickly catching up to race leader Alan Prost. The race was eventually red-flagged on lap 31 due to the extreme weather conditions, and as Prost began slowing down his McLaren before the finish line, Senna shot through to steal the chequered flag. There's an official right in the middle of the road now showing the red flag, and the chequered flag is going out. They are stopping... This is going to be the end of the Monaco Grand Prix and Prost is stopping and Senna crosses the line before he gets there. Now that's amazing. Prost has stopped. Controversy and speculation followed, but the race win was eventually awarded to Prost, many arguing that Senna deserved the win. I'm virtually certain that Prost has won with Senna second. Formula One even has its own Monegasque driver in Charles Leclerc, but he has sadly never experienced the win at home. This year, Leclerc qualified in pole position but due to a number of strategic errors and pit lane miscommunications, race day didn't go as planned, and he finished in fourth place. Stay out, stay out, stay out. That's Leclerc. They're double stacking down at Ferrari. Charles Leclerc, who was leading this race, leading this race comfortably, came in for intermediate tyres and has uh, had to make a second pit stop. Do you feel like you were let down by the team today? Let down is not the word. Sometimes mistakes can happen, but... Uh... There's been too many mistakes today. Despite these memorable moments, there's been rumours and a lot of speculation surrounding the future of this Grand Prix. It was announced in September this year that the race would be renewed until 2025. But when you dig deeper into the contract, flaws emerge in the relationship between the Automobile Club de Monaco and Formula One. Monaco currently pays between 10 and $15 million a year to participate in the F1 calendar. However, despite that bargain price compared to the other countries, those in charge at Monaco have been reluctant to make any changes. The renewed contract appears to be on much improved terms for Formula One, who had made it clear that they were ready to walk away from the principality if the changes were not made. With the new compromises that have been made between the two parties, Monaco is here to stay for the foreseeable future. But that doesn't mean that F1 can't pull out in the meantime. The question is, with the new regulations making the cars bigger and the amount of logistical problems that the weekend presents, should Monaco be trying to hold on to their famous race? If 2025 does turn out to be the end of the road for Monaco, fans will surely miss the beautiful landscapes and the cunning strategy that goes into every team's visit to the Principality. To watch the drivers thread these big, bulky, lightning-fast F1 cars between the barriers is spellbinding, 
and it would be a shame for advances in technology to end Formula One's annual stop on the French Riviera. But it's important that this, or any race, doesn't come before the quality of life for the Monegasques, who call this luxurious city home. And now we have a highlight from Monaco on design. We talk vibrant colors and patterns with Danish fashion designer Steen Goya, ahead of the opening of her brand's new shop in London. If I was to name one inspiration for me as a designer, as a driving power, it's color. It's where I start from. Every time I build a collection, it's, it's playful. And then I would say artistic because we do everything in-house, like all prints and all fabrics are all um, made within the house of us. I think what is quite significant for us is that actually when I hear people wearing our clothes, they all say that they get a lot of comments when they wear us because they are standing out a bit in the streets because it is you, you have to be quite sort of in a way brave to put it on because it's, um, what would you say, like... It has a lot of great attention. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so attention, <Yeah>. colorful, <laughs> seeking clothes, but also they still do represent a lot of the Scandinavian ethos and the Danish ethos, right? How does living in Copenhagen and uh, the overall ethos of, uh, of Denmark around design inform what you do, even if... Uh, the aesthetic is more of a standout aesthetic than what we might traditionally associate with uh, Scandinavia. I think, in a way, the playfulness, the um, the openness of combining different colors. I think when you live in a country like Denmark, where you are quite safe and where you have um, educational possibilities and background within the creative world that you definitely learn that you can you can do quite a lot and uh, it's it's okay and i think this safe and open way of living i, I think it also uh, inspires you to to utilize it in a way or to 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 try to experiment and and and, and find your own way in it and um, i think it it creates this creative culture also of course uh, we have a um, creative environment in Denmark which is very much also supported from government and from private uh, companies so I, I think there is a quite healthy creative environment in, in, in Denmark of course it can be better or worse and there will be people telling us that it's not true but I think overall and compared to situations in many other uh, countries, I think it's it's one of one of the special things. So Copenhagen is quite, I would say, a smaller creative community. Many of us know each other, and I like to collaborate within um, also other industries than fashion. So at the moment, we are working quite a lot with a, an architect um, company called Spaken and X with who is creating our identities for the shows and and the way that we work together across like both fashion and, and kind of spatial design is quite interesting. And I think we have a very um, beautiful way of like understanding each other and coming to a point where we actually create something completely new together. And I think this is a, a good leeway into your 
uh, exciting London store opening as well because I know that you have some interesting collaborators for, for the interiors and the design of that store as well. So let, tell me a little bit about uh, how you created the concept of that store, who your collaborators were. We started creating a new visual identity for us um, about a year ago. We're working with a creative studio from Sweden. It's called Vangen Söderström. They have created our like our retail designs, uh, and the way that they work has been really interesting for us because we um, it was really important for us to to use um, materials that were um, the most sustainable versions that we could use, and they managed to actually create and find things that are the best that we could manage to find in within um, our kind of levels of being the most responsible as possible that's it's interesting again you know to find somebody who is actually not architects they are more they're more designers into different areas of doing interior design or objects or and and they haven't tried to build a space from scratch And of course, we haven't tried that either. You know, we did our own shop uh, or our first shop uh, together. But, you know, taking to the next level, understanding how important it is that it's also functional in a, in a, in a special way when you want to kind of make more stores. I think I think it's the, the stores and the store that we are opening very soon in London. I think it's very different from the first store that we opened up. We changed, you know, the, the material we use. We changed the color. It has become a lot more bright. Before it was more warm. We used brass. Now we're using aluminium. And, you know, it's it's a lot of fun to to work together with people that you respect a lot, creating something uh, specific. And I think it's maybe also true to the way we in general are working. I think if you respect each other, in the different areas of art or architecture or fashion, I think everybody finds it energizing to combine their thoughts with other thoughts and create something new from that, uh, instead of being very kind of locked into your own, you know, aesthetic. What is important when we find the people that we want to work with is that they have a strong understanding of colors <laughs> or are curious about the way we work with colors, which is often uh, an an opening for a collaboration that you are curious about the other part, uh, how they work, how they how, how do they actually create their uh, art or aesthetic, um, which is a very nice starting point. Being curious and and um, and open. And tell me also, I mean, as the brand is growing now, is it important to have these physical spaces and keep investing in brick-and-mortar retail, uh, whether it is in London or in other markets where, where you are growing? Yeah. I think we learned from, from our home market that the combination of, of uh, wholesale and uh, e-commerce and own stores are a strong combination And it's also been a big dream for us for for many years to actually be able to to open a shop here. It's quite a big thing for us to be here this this moment. Yeah. And to end the show from Monaco on Culture this week, we explore the relationship between British espionage and male homosexuality with writer, author, and artist Hugh Lemmy.
When did I become a traitor? It's the sort of question that seems terribly relevant to those who aren't, but a formality to those of us who are. When is simply a moment on the way to being. I suppose there was a moment when it passed from being a lonely notion to being the act itself. Yet one could always have stepped back from a couple of acts of youthful indiscretion. After all, one must imagine that there are moments in the life of most young men where the thought of treachery might cross his mind, an obliging friend, a comrade. At the right time or in the right place, he reaches out and one might act upon it. But does that make you a traitor for life? Well, yes, I suppose I am. But the question of when I turned, as it were, seems really to be a concern of those who never did and like to imagine they never could. To the journalist, the member of parliament, the man on the Clapham omnibus. To the controller, the officer, the agent, indeed to me. The question is of passing interest at best. All I can be sure of is that once I was not a traitor, and now I am. These are the facts. The story between them is intelligence. Is my team plowing that I was used to drive? I guess I've always had an interest in a lot of these sort of mid-century stories about English homosexuality in this sort of time period of how the sort of homosexual identity and what became today like the gay identity formed around the sort of 1920s and 1930s in the UK and how that was really shaped and inflected by class and politics and, and race and all these sort of things. And in that interest in research, they're just was this recurrent theme as I was, I was reading these things and writing about these things that there were these, these men who kept popping up who were working in the security services. And in some ways, like uh, one of my sort of first sort of conscious memories, I guess, of, of homosexuality in the public sphere was, was actually the point at which they allowed gay men to serve again in the foreign office in the mid 1990s. Something about that, even as a child sort of I, I don't know, I think my mom talked to me about it and it's, it has this interest. So in my mind, I was like, this is very strange. That there's all these stories about these, these gay men serving in the security services or working as double agents, when my experience of it was that somehow they were shut out. So I was sort of interested in that story and, and how one thing led to the other. And in that research, it just became this web. Every time I sort of started a new sort of channel of research and as a spider diagram, say, ticked it off in this little box, suddenly I'd re realise, oh, this person appears in this person's story and this person was also here at this time. So that's kind of how the interest emerged. And I was like, oh, actually, there's a much deeper, more complex story here than just um, the fact that there were some gay men as spies, which is that the the there's something about the homosexual identity as it was forming at that time that actually was intrinsically linked with the creation of sort of spycraft in the British state. So that's how the story sort of for me started. But as I got into it, I realised that so many of these histories, although a lot of them are very, very well written, very well researched, they they tend to be from, let's say, like a sort of military history position. Um, and I was really interested in these life stories that were underneath it that were sort of pushing to get out. 
espionage has like a particularly rich history in England and with the creation of like the English state, first of all, and then the British state, the English have always been particularly good at it. Queen Elizabeth I, one of the sort of main qualities or aspects of her rule was this development of this very, very sophisticated intelligence network. And that that's sort of something that's grown both internally and externally in, in England and in the UK ever since. And the nature of espionage in, in England is quite distinct in some ways in its development from, for example, the United States. So... And, and so the story I'm telling is is very much like an English story, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that's conflate England and um, and Scotland and Wales as all England. I'm saying specifically English, and not a British story necessarily, because it's to do with the reproduction of certain class values within the south of England, especially. But place just became so like obviously important as a way of telling that story that it's a, a conception of Englishness is really tied to place. I mean, that is one of the the roots of all forms of nationalism is. Is the countryside, is the land, these sort of things. So telling that story through place and through the idea of these people having some sense, supposedly having some sense of loyalty, not just to the state, but to Englishness itself. And that is what became, I think, so shocking for so many people in the betrayal of a lot of these men, of these nations. And at the same time, then it becomes obvious that, that if people are living actually in some ways outside of that society, then their relationship, because they're homosexual at a time when homosexuality is not really tolerated legally and, and socially in most places, their relationship towards their Englishness becomes really complicated. And secondly, because the story is also like a psychogeographical one, the story of espionage is a psychogeographical one. You can locate so many of the parts of the story, so many, so much of the development of espionage to specific buildings, buildings in London. And so like, this is where it happened. And you can trace the sort of development of these different spy agencies through them moving from these different buildings and the degree to which they're regarded as um, publics, private. You know, a lot of them stayed secret for a long time and really, you know, when they started to build the new MI6 building in central London, that was like this big gesture of the sort of the opening up of the intelligence services into like the public eye. So buildings are, are obviously really, really important to them. Deceit is the English game. I think I learned even as a schoolboy that lying was a precondition not only of victory but merely of functioning. From that point on, lying came naturally to me, like scanning a room for familiar and hostile faces, and I reveled in its rewards. All around me, a network of interlocking lies meticulously maintained, like a well-kept country garden with its team of groundskeepers. We call it manners, politics, business and diplomacy, this fabric of functioning lies, and we are bred to be its custodians. But I don't think that even I had ever appreciated that the greatest Englishman was he who could lie to himself and maintain that lie single-handedly, in the privacy of his own home or in some godforsaken little torture chamber. That lie we call espionage, and it is an English craft. Well, I worked very closely with my collaborator on Yaker Igway, and from the very start, we've been sort of discussing the shape and the visual language of the film. And we were drawing a lot of influences there from the sort of already established lang like visual languages that are legible to, to people in, in the UK about espionage, which is, I guess, essentially spy films. Obviously, James Bond. Although I guess, yeah, that's a minor reference to us. Perhaps more influential would be the 1979 adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which tells a very, a very interesting story through quite a slow way of filming, which sort of 
is important because the the, the, the whole point of of uh, that TV show and and the carriers books are about this the networks that create espionage and the the divided loyalties and the sort of ethical pressures and um, compromises that people make, and so actually so much of espionage is actually about silence, about quiet, about observation, and not about chases and guns and you know car chases. So when we started yeah, putting it together, we wanted to tell this story of this visual language, which was quite slow paced, and then to try and balance within that a mixture of, or again, a, maybe a compromise between this sort of vision of England as this bucolic, never changing sort of pastoral landscape and um, a land of compromise. And then and then also a place of claustrophobia and um, of people being watched over and watching over each other. So there's a lot of shots. We, we, we tried to shoot a lot from upper stories of buildings down to crowds, for example, to reproduce this sort of idea that was in the mind and was the moral justification for a lot of spies of sort of watching over this uh, placid population and protecting them on their own behalf. And that, that, that's what gave them the permission to do some pretty heinous things in the process. This network of lies dominates England. How could it not? With such appetites as rulers for revenge and control and possession, anything less than etiquette would be a barbarian's knife fight. We would be living in ditches and huts. Instead, we have built this, an empire. On the careful management of our appetites, so as that their consequences and conquests are by and large directed outwards. Everything inside is one thing, Everything outside, quite another. We are a devilish nation. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thanks for listening. <laughs>